be helpful, friends, to stay in Isaiah 53. This series that we begin today for the next eight weeks um, is a topical series, and so it won't be going through a section of the Bible piece by piece, as is our typical pattern, uh, but thinking about big topics uh, and taking us to what the Bible teaches in different places. Um, I'm going to pray for us once again. Uh, Inside your booklet, there's space to take notes if that's helpful for you uh, as we think about the wondrous cross. Our Father, we thank you again for this time together this morning and ask that as we come to your word that you would be with us, that by your spirit you would help us to hear you rightly and to be changed forever because of it. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if you were asked to use just one word to define your identity. What would you choose? You've only got 10 seconds. Uh, What word captures the essence of who you are best? One simple word can speak of a relatable simplicity and at the same time can convey extraordinary depth, can't it? Uh, This morning, as I've already said, we were over the road at the Anzac service, which was a great privilege to lead. And uh, as the MC began the day, speaking of that word, um, or those letters really, Anzac, and what they mean, filling it out with ideas of mateship and courage and perseverance and sacrifice, there's a relatable simplicity when you say the word Anzac. And yet, for those who I saw this morning with medals across their chest and the dampness in their eyes, those words weren't simple but deeply profound. They conveyed extraordinary meaning that are wrapped up in the identity of those men and women who have served our country in the cause of peace and freedom. We live in a world where people are constantly searching for, constantly expressing and defining and questioning and longing for an identity like that that they can cling to, that they can attach themselves that they can derive meaning from that goes beyond the simplicity of a word and to the deep and extraordinary meaning of who you are and what you are. And all too often we seek that meaning, we attach our identity to things like race and sexuality and vocation and family and achievement for good reason, because those are significant things. But when we speak of ultimate meaning and where to find that all-defining identity that you can attach yourself to that can never be disappointed in this life or the life to come, Christians throughout the centuries have found that our, our identity is found and located and derived from the cross of Christ. Simple, 
yet deeply profound. As one writer has said, first Christians wanted to to commemorate as central to their understanding of life and Jesus and the world and everything. They chose to commemorate neither his birth nor his youth, his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign nor the gift of his spirit, but his death and his crucifixion as central to who he is and therefore who we are and ought to be. And so down through the centuries, from tattoos to stained glass windows, from earrings to gravestones, Christians have attached themselves to the cross of Jesus as the place at which we find our identity, our meaning, in simple and extraordinarily profound ways as well which can be puzzling at first glance to think of the bloody cross adorning your ears as jewellery. The beautiful cross with a dying, dead man hanging there in a stained glass window. The shameful cross brought front and centre in the Christian faith to say that's where we want to boast. The horrific cross, an instrument of torture that we say here is where we find joy and satisfaction. We're going to spend our time over the next eight weeks exploring why that's the case. Looking at the cross like you look at a diamond through different angles, different facets that all shed light on the one beautiful reality. And kind of like studying a diamond, the end result for us, I pray, will be profound and significant and lasting. But just to give you a heads up, this series is going to be full of us asking big questions and looking at big realities and not so much thinking about things that we ought to do therefore, but who we ought to be. That we, as we study the cross, are lost in wonder, just like you are when you study a diamond in all its brilliance. That the takeaway, hopefully, for us will be to say, wow, Jesus is magnificent. That we might marvel at him and find our identity in him and glory in him and trust in him and treasure him above all else. And as the Apostle Paul says, boast only in him and his cross. It's interesting, the cross takes up only a few paragraphs, really, when you think about the unfolding story of the scriptures. And yet it permeates the entirety of God's story of salvation. 
the necessity of, the centrality of, the achievement of the cross is always on the horizon in the Bible. It's always in the review mirror. It's the engine driving God's plan of salvation to undo and then recreate the whole of the world in Jesus. And so just for a few minutes this morning, as we think about this initial thought uh, that Jesus died on the cross according to the Scriptures, that the cross was long promised and looked forward to, not just in prophecy, but also in the pattern of life that God had given to his people as his one and only plan for salvation. So there are the two simple points that we're going to look at as we think about Jesus' death on the cross according to the scriptures, that we see it in prophecy as well as the pattern of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Jesus himself is the one who takes upon his lips the fact that he is dying on the cross in Jerusalem according to the scriptures, what God had promised long ago in the Old Testament. Uh, if you were here at Easter, you might, have re you might remember these words from Luke chapter 18, where Jesus himself says, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything is that written about the Son of Man, written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. We see that from Jesus' own self-conscious explanation of himself and his death on the cross, that he sees his mission and his identity as caught up in what God had promised long ago in the Scriptures through the prophets, the Psalms, and even in the law of Moses. And so when Jesus, risen from the grave, is walking the Emmaus Road with his disciples, what does he do? Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so the apostles too pick this up, that Jesus' death on the cross was according to the scriptures, uh, that's what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that Jesus' death in our place, that it's of first importance and that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' death fulfills what the prophets promised and the pattern that the law had set over God's people. Uh, the themes and the phrases of Isaiah 53 were so frequently on the lips of Jesus as he spoke about his identity and his mission that you can be in no doubt that he saw himself as fulfilling this Old Testament person, this prophesied person, the suffering servant. As Ross said, the most, one of the most famous passages in the Bible put to music in Handel's Messiah. And it was the Messiah, Jesus himself, who took these themes and this, these words and the identity of this character some 750 years before him promised, he took it upon himself to say, that is me, I am the suffering servant. As you can see from uh, Isaiah 53, there's a lot of chapters that come before this prophecy about the suffering servant. 
a big picture of what God is promising to do, not just for his people, but for the whole world. Uh, leading up to uh, the, the, this song about the suffering servant, we hear about God defeating his enemies, about bringing his people back from exile into his land that they might enjoy him once again, and that what God is promising to do for his people, currently under his judgment, currently experiencing separation and the effects of their own sin and unfaithfulness, what God will do, what they need God to do, to bring them back, to defeat their enemies, to reconcile them to himself. What God will do for them, he will ultimately do for the whole of creation, is the promise that we see in the book of Isaiah. And with those extraordinary, those cosmic events that Isaiah is looking forward to, on an enormous scale, with extraordinary power, delivering ultimate victory, as you receive those promises from God, yes, we need to be reconciled. God's enemies need to be defeated. Sin needs to be dealt with. We need to be brought back and the beauty and the glory of creation needs to be restored in some perfect and ongoing and eternal way. Yes, God, we need to do that. You can imagine as God's people hearing those promises and thinking we need to take to the streets and beat our chests and celebrate and scream and wave banners about this extraordinary victory that God is going to bring about. But that would be an impossible response to make as you move from the extraordinary promises of power and victory and recreation that God is making to the means by which he will do it. Because as you go from promises of victory and power on a cosmic scale you're forced into kind of mouth-stopping humility when you hear that it's through the suffering servant one who will die for the sins of the world will be crushed for our iniquities. The key to God establishing peace and recreating his world and restoring humanity's relationship with him is through the substitutionary suffering of his servant. This divine and perfect human being who will come into the world to set things right. The Saviour King, who in order to bring about reconciliation, in order to restore the world, needs to deal with sin and brokenness, needs to deal with rebellion and iniquity, needs to deal with God's just judgment in order to be the fountain of mercy that our world is crying out for. And so the extraordinary promise that God's make, God makes is that the iniquity of us all 
will be upon his shoulders. The way that Isaiah 53 is structured, speaking of this suffering servant who is not impressive or good-looking, despite what the paintings might tell you, this root who tender shoot who who grows up out of dry ground, who will be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows who's familiar with pain, the very centre of what this suffering servant will do is found structurally and and in literary form in verses 4 to 6 of Isaiah 53. Let's read them again. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's hard to miss, isn't it, the substitutionary sacrifice of this suffering servant. It's repeated so much. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. The punishment is on him. That brings us peace. And it's by his wounds that we're healed. We are the sheep that have gone our own way alienated ourselves from God, distanced ourselves from him, broken the relationship of love and provision that he had established, and by rights and by justice, deserving then of his punishment, deserving of him to say, you have that separation now forever, and yet instead, that iniquity that was ours is laid upon him so that by his wounds we might be healed in all its meaning, in all its fullness. And this prophecy of what this ultimate servant, this divine and human character would achieve, not just for God's people but for God's world, it was, it was proclaimed in prophecy and looked forward to in prophecy, but for God's people, it was also built into the very pattern and the DNA of their everyday life, into the rhythm of how they lived their lives. It was the sacrificial system that continued to say to them day after day and year after year, all is not right in the world as you know and experience. And in order for your relationship with God to be restored and renewed, you need sin to be dealt with. You need his his justice and his wrath to be set aside. And so God gave his people this intricate system of sacrifices by which they're constantly reminded day after day and year after year that they need to be made right with God. That sacrifice is necessary. That sin is serious. 
that God is holy and the greatest need in all the world is for people's relationship with him to be restored. Uh, You know how maybe (laughs) when you're working away throughout the day and sometimes you kind of get in the flow of things and so you forget to look up, you forget to get out of your pyjamas. Surely we've all experienced that in the working from home era. It's what ministers do all the time. Get to 2pm and realise I'm still in my pyjamas. Having been plugging away and just forgetting to to get up from, from the desk, forgetting to get up from the chair, forgetting to look up. And sometimes what you need is for your phone to beep and one of those reminders to break in to go, oh yeah, that's what I need to do. In the midst of the rhythm of your daily life, you need something to break in and to remind you. And it was kind of like that for God's people Israel when he gave them the sacrificial system built into the rhythm of life with these constant reminders that your relationship with God needs to be maintained, it needs to be restored. There's great barriers to, to knowing and loving and serving him that need to be overcome. And those barriers exist because of your own sin. And you couldn't miss that fact, could you, when you had to take a lamb without blemish to the temple and you had to slit its throat and you had to see it and be splattered by it and hear the noise, not just of the animal's life ending, but of the blood flowing. Time and time again, it's hard to ignore that. So sinful humanity in all our distorted ways kept trying to. But one of the things that God's people ought to have been reminded of in this pattern of life every day, every year, was that something bigger was needed than just the life of this animal dying in the temple. Otherwise, we're going to have to keep doing this day after day and year after year. And how many sacrifices will be enough? How many lambs and bulls and goats and pigeons have to die in order to deal with the sin of the world? Which is a complicated equation that you'll never get to the end of. Unless God breaks in in the person of his suffering servant to take all that iniquity and all of that punishment upon his own shoulders in a once and for all time sacrifice for the sins of the world. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 or Google it or just listen. This is what we read where we're reminded that the best Old Testament commentary is the New Testament. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews explains it in Hebrews chapter 10. Telling us the, the law in the Old Testament is only a shadow of the good things that were coming not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship God. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshippers worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' death on the cross was promised through prophecy and longed for through the pattern of the Old Testament law that he would bring to an end the need to sacrifice goats and bulls. And he would do once and for all time what the world was longing for, sin to be dealt with, our relationship with God restored, reconciliation achieved. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to be thinking more about what that means and what that looks like. But Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us that Jesus' death on the cross in accordance with the scriptures means that the once and for all time sacrifice for sin has been made and that his sacrifice has has made perfect through the body of Jesus on the cross has made us perfect once and for all time. One of the little finickety details that I like to say to people when we talk about this church and its architecture is that what I have behind me is not an altar. It's okay if you say it's an altar because that's kind of common usage. But let's all promise today that from now on, when we look at this church and think about its architecture, in all its beauty and complexity and leakiness, that what we have back here is not an altar because we no longer need to make sacrifices. That we no longer draw near to God for worship by a sacrifice that we can make on an altar, but by the sacrifice of Christ once and for all time. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, draw near with confidence. Draw near with the full assurance that faith brings 
knowing that Jesus, the suffering servant, the fulfilment of all God's promises has done everything required to restore our relationship with him, to bring us back and to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray together. May we never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. Our Father, we thank you for your one extraordinary plan for salvation in Jesus, promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in his cross and his resurrection. We pray that you would help us in this series and every day while we wait for Jesus to return to marvel at the cross of Jesus, to glory in it, your wisdom, your power, your victory, your righteousness. And may we give you thanks and praise because of it. For Jesus' sake. Amen.